0: We're now into epiphany tide uh, the twelve days are up so you can you never have to feel guilty if you leave your tree up for a little longer after Christmas because you uh, technically are allowed to leave it up till January 6th, that's when epiphany starts so um, yeah we're into epiphany tide now this Sunday tomorrow will be the baptism of Christ which is the f- that's the first Sunday after Epiphany, which is, that was this Wednesday. Um, So, yes, new year, new church season, and uh, Lent will be here before you know it. So, all right, um, just a quick review. We've been talking the last three classes, basically, about baptism, and (laughs) not much else. (laughs) And we're moving on. The next three classes will be on uh, confession and absolution. So if you're if you're following along with the way that the liturgy goes, basically all that we're doing is graduating from talking about the invocation in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to talking about I, a poor miserable sinner, confess unto you all my sins and iniquities. That little bit is what we're going to be spending the next three weeks on, but there's enough there we could spend a lot more time even than that. So just a quick review about baptism. Who is baptism for? for us. Who's us? Sinners. Okay, and who are sinners? Everyone. everyone. <laughs> baptism is for everyone. That's the, that's the big point, and I want to hammer that home. Baptism is for everyone. It's for Old people. It's for young people. It's for middle-aged people. It's for people on their deathbeds. It's for infants. Okay? Baptism is for everyone, because it is for anyone who has sin. It offers a new life that is one in Christ. What is the only prerequisite for baptism? For new life. Water. Well, those are the only things you need, mm-hmm. but the prerequisite. What do you have to be in order to receive the water and the word, to receive the new life in baptism? Living. The opposite. You have to be dead. Yeah, so the only prerequisite is that you are dead. And everybody is dead, so baptism is for everyone, because everyone needs the new life. Everyone needs that... Death to self and resurrection in Christ. Hey, baptism is for everyone. Baptism uh, does a lot of things for you. St. Paul says to uh, St. Titus in that epistle, uh, it is a washing and renewal by the Holy Spirit. It is rebirth. Uh, Jesus says to Nicodemus uh, that you must be born, reborn of water and spirit. Uh, remember, Nicodemus is confused. How can I be reborn? And you can almost picture Jesus shaking his head. Ah, There are a number of times you can picture Jesus doing that. Like when they pull the sword out, and he goes, No, what are you doing? Or when he tells them, Don't take a sword or a knapsack. And they say, Well, we've got this sword, and that'll be enough. And he says, uh, No, <laughs> you don't understand. Nicodemus, you don't understand. I'm not saying that you have to crawl back into your mother and be born again. It's a different kind of birth uh, because it's a different kind of life. Okay, so it gives you these things, uh, forgiveness of sins, life, salvation, as the Catechism would say, but it also gives you an in. And uh, to what place or to what life does baptism give you this in? You were out before and now you're in, and where are you in? What is this place? Not this room, I mean this place. Yes? The church! Correct! This is the church. And, And when I say the church, typically, I don't mean the congregation. I try to make a distinction between the congregation and the church. This is a church, but this is not the church. This is a church, and this is the congregation of Holy Trinity Lutheran Church. But we are not the church. The church is the entire collection of believers through all time and through all space, through all history. Uh, The congregated saints of the Lord, the Holy Catholic Apostolic Church. That's what we call that's what we talk about in the creed and we don't we're not going to talk about that now cuz we'll get there. So, baptism brings you into the church. Now you're in. You're in Christ, you're in the church. And you have an in through baptism so that you get the goods. You get your ticket so you can get in and get everything that is offered to you in this place. You get your hospital wristband, your admission into this place. There's a lot of good stuff that comes with your hospital admission if you are a sick person, but you have to have that admission first. It gets you in, and then when you are in, you get all the goods of the hospital, which really aren't the goods if you're sick, but that's what the church gives, the medicine that you need, okay? What is given in baptism is nourished at the font. What's given at the, or excuse me, What's given at the font in baptism is nourished at the altar. Okay, they, All these things tie together. So, baptism is something also that regenerates your will, and it opens your eyes. And this is where we start crossing over that bridge from invocation to confession and absolution. And uh, that is because when your eyes are opened, it's, it's almost like the reverse of what happens in the Garden of Eden, or even a better version of what happens, because their eyes are open in the Garden. They see and realize that they were naked, where they didn't really care before. All of a sudden, that's an issue. Their eyes are opened. But now your eyes are open because you see good. uh, You know what good is, but your eyes are also open because you recognize what is bad. And we'll talk more about recognizing good and bad through the Word, in a different class. Suffice it to say for this class, Baptism opens your eyes, it regenerates your will. Now you know what is good, now you know what is bad. And when you do something that is bad, which is what we would say is sin, any rebellion against God's word, going against anything that is good. Sin, when you sin, you know that you have sinned. Your eyes are open to it and your eye sees and your eye recognizes. And now it isn't the same way for you that it used to be before you were Um, made alive in baptism, because you used to be dead in trespasses and sins, and you were kind of an ignorant clod, that you didn't know what was good and what was bad, and you didn't know. Uh, But now in baptism, you do know. Now you see, and now you're in the life of Christ. You're on the way. And being on the way means, really, in the simplest of terms, being a Christian means... Hating what is evil and running away from it and loving what is good and running toward that. That is being a Christian. Following Jesus, which means hating evil, loving good. That's it. See, theology doesn't have to be hard. Today's the day when you start realizing how easy theology is. Uh, People make it harder than it has to be. But the whole point of this class is to show you how simple it is, really. How simple it is. Uh, So, now your eyes are open, and this now means that when you sin, you know it's wrong. So what do you do then, as somebody who knows that you're not supposed to sin, but knows that you do, and recognizes it, what do you do when you have sinned, when there is evil in you, when you've not gone after what is good and instead gone after what is evil? Well, you confess. See, this is the bridge from being baptized to confession and absolution. It all ties together. So you sin, you confess. This is the natural uh, way that it goes, the movement of faith, the movement of the Christian life. And uh, Luther says himself, uh, when I urge you to go to confession, I'm urging you to do nothing more than to be a Christian. Because being a Christian is confessing your sins. Being a Christian is living a life of humility and repentance. We'll talk about repentance in just a little bit today, what that is and what it means for you. But uh, this idea that I can be a Christian and I can recognize that I'm sinful but then never confess my sins is really kind of ridiculous. You daily sin much, as the catechism language puts it, you daily sin much and are daily in need of repentance. If you remember from uh, the catechism about baptism. How often does the old man die by uh, a death by drowning? And how often is a new man supposed to emerge and arise? By daily contrition and repentance, the old Adam in us should be drowned and die. Daily. And if you really want to know what daily means, all you have to do is look at what Jesus says about what daily means. Because the disciples ask him, Hey, now listen, how often do I really need to forgive my brother? Is seven times enough? And what does he say? Seven times seventy times. Not seven only, but seven times seventy times. Not in a lifetime, not even in a day in an hour, in the twinkling of an eye. That's how often you forgive. Every, it repeated constantly, daily. So, uh, daily contrition and repentance, the life of... This is from the 95 Theses, the first of the Theses. I think it's the first. But don't hold me to that. When Christ our Lord says, repent. He wills that the entire life of the Christian be one of repentance. When John the Baptizer proclaims, hey, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand, that is your entire life is one of repentance because the kingdom of God is at hand. Now there's more to it than just walking around feeling sorry for yourself. That's not what it means to live a life of repentance. We'll talk more about that. Okay? So, confession is the natural progression. Why? Because you're supposed to love evil and or love good and hate what is evil. That's from the prophet Amos, which is part of which of the groups of books from the Old Testament? This is for one of you three. See, Brian, you're kind of off the hook because you're out of midweek, so this is more of a memory test for you. Amos. Which kind of a book is Amos? I'll give you a hint. It's a book nobody ever reads. and it's a prophet so if nobody reads it and it's a prophet what kind of a prophet do you think it is? Brian a minor minor prophet yeah one of those groups of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, it seems, of names that are hard to pronounce and remember that I make you remember anyway, and there's no real order to them, just a whole bunch of strange names, and they're really, really short books, and then nobody reads them, because they're weird and short, and at the very end of the Old Testament, we've got better things to do than read the Minor Prophets, don't we? But Amos is a really good book. Uh, you should yeah, Well, all the Minor Prophets. Or you should read the Minor Prophets. Um, maybe we'll do a Bible class one day just on Minor Prophets. There's so much in the Minor Prophets. Read the book of Micah. So many of the prophecies about the coming Christ come from Micah. Ah, Bethlehem, you are not the least of Judea. That's from Micah. How do they know where the Christ is going to be born? Well, from the Minor Prophet you got to read this stuff. but So Amos chapter 5 is all about hating what is evil and loving what is good. Run away from evil things. Run to the good things. Don't touch evil. If you touch evil, if you participate in evil, it gives incarnation to evil. You make evil alive and active. You don't want that. You want evil to be dead and gone. You don't want it to touch you. Touch what's good. The touch is important. You're going you're gonna to get that from this class. Touch is a very important thing. If evil touches you, it's very bad. Or if you touch evil, it's very bad. But if good touches you, specifically if God touches you, that's a really good thing for you. That's one reason why we talk about the gospel as the touch of Jesus, because that's a really important thing that is beneficial when the Lord comes to touch you. And the way that he does it is uh, manifold. Lots of different ways that he does it. But nonetheless, he's touching you. Okay? So, then in Romans chapter 7, this is the place where St. Paul says, uh, where he laments the Christian life. So if you ever really wanted to know what it's like to be a Christian, uh, and if if daily contrition and repentance, this idea of a life of confession, is really what the Christian ought to do, all you have to read is Romans chapter 7, because St. Paul says, the good that I would do... I do not do, and the evil that I don't want to do, that is the very thing that I do. The flesh wars against the spirit. Your life is made more difficult by being a Christian, because now you know the evil, and now you know you're not supposed to touch it, and now you try not to touch it. And it's a huge battle for you. It's a huge battle. Nobody said that being a Christian was going to be easy. In fact, it makes your life a little bit harder. People don't like you as much. (laughs) You have to do things differently. It's harder to be a Christian. It would be easier just to do whatever you wanted to do. But it's always easier to do whatever you want to do, isn't it? It would be so much easier to let your kids do whatever they wanted to do instead of disciplining them and setting rules and boundaries and being consistent with maintaining rules and boundaries. It would be so much easier just to let them do whatever they want. It's harder to set rules and boundaries, but it's better for them. See, it's better for you. One time, my brother found out that if you threw stuffed animals up into the moving fan blades, the blades would catch the animals and throw them across the room, and he thought that was really fun. So he started throwing everything he could find up at the fan blades to watch it fly across the room, and broke all four of the light bulbs in the fan fixture. And then went to my father and asked my father, can I please have four new light bulbs? And my father said, why do you need four light bulbs? And he said, well, the four upstairs all burnt out. And he said, all at the same time? He said, yes. And then my father discovered what my brother had done. And he said, you don't get any more light bulbs until you pay for them yourself, because you broke all four of those. So my dad was a, is a saint. And he helped us build a lemonade stand. And we sold little cups of lemonade, and made the money to buy new light bulbs. And so many people said to my father, well, why are you going to, I mean, you're going to make him have a dark room until, they get, until he gets the money to, to pay, wouldn't it just be easier if he just gave him the light bulbs? And my father's response was always the same, yes, yes, absolutely, it would be a lot easier just to give him the light bulbs. But then he didn't learn anything then there are no consequences for actions. And that's not gonna be as good for him as me going and taking on a little bit of hardship to make sure that he gets those light bulbs himself. That's the Christian life. It's harder, but it's better for you in the, in the end run. You know, the, the, the way of death is the comfortable way. The way of life, the way of Christianity is the hard way. It's full of brambles and thorns. You're going to get pricked and beaten and tumble along the way. But the end, the end is so much better. It's the path less trod. It's not a path that's well worn. Okay? So, very good. The liturgy then, because so much of this is Focused around the structure of the liturgy, and the liturgy really uh, echoes and mirrors the Christian faith. The liturgy follows this natural progression of baptism, that's invocation, the name of God, entrance in, and then motion toward confession. Uh, The didache. Which I talk about a lot, and that's sort of become one of my pet projects, is working on the Didache. Uh, But that's the Didache is the Greek word for teaching. Uh, The the Didache is the teaching of the Twelve Apostles. It's the earliest book after the Gospels that is recorded. First century, written before the turn of the century by the Apostles. Well, the teachings of the Apostles. It was probably written by Barnabas. That's what I think, anyway. Paul's companion, Barnabas. Um, But it records the teachings of the Twelve Apostles, the things that they taught to the churches and the people who wanted to become Christians. And here is what the Didache says. On the Lord's Day, come together, break bread, and hold Eucharist. Why do we have communion every Sunday? This is what Christians do. Because the Lord's Day is the day the Lord will come to feed you. We'll talk about that more when we get to the Ten Commandments. But every day, every Lord's Day, come together, break bread, hold the Eucharist, after confessing your transgressions. So there is an order to things. The first thing that we do, the sort of prefatory material for the divine service, the liturgy, is the invocation and confession and absolution. It's like the introduction. And then it doesn't really start until the introit and the Kyrie. That's when the service really starts. Everything that happens before that is the introductory material. Uh, we're going to take care of all that. So here you are, following the model of, uh, of baptism in your liturgical life, just as in your daily life of faith. So. Let's talk about confession and absolution then. That's where we're going today. The nuts and bolts of it all. What is it? And there's a lot to say about that. There's a lot to say about the difference between what we would say corporate confession and absolution, which is when you go to church and you open your book, and everybody says the same thing all together. And then the pastor turns and absolves everybody all at the same time. That's corporate. It's everyone together. Uh, so there's, there's that. And then there's private confession and absolution, which we'll also talk about eventually. And then there is something that is a little bit of a hybrid, which if you come to church on Ash Wednesday, uh, you will see called Corporate Confession with Individual Absolution which is when everybody in the congregation confesses together, and then everybody comes up one by one, and the pastor absolves everybody individually, which is a really nice thing, but it takes a really long time, which is only, that's why we only do it a couple times a year. <laughs> but it's really nice, and, and nothing beats having the pastor look you in the eyes and tell you that you are forgiven, and then you, you can't run away from it, because you can't think that you're just someone in a crowd, and maybe he really wasn't talking to me. Um, But we'll get there. So, the nuts and bolts. The thing about confession is that all through the Christian life, the motivation toward confession, the thing that you feel through confession, and then what you leave confession with and continue to live with as a Christian is something called repentance. Repentance is um, an important thing. The life of a Christian is a life of repentance. Repentance comes from, in the Greek, the word is metanoia, which is to turn, but it's not like turning my back on something. Like, I'm going to slight you, so I'm going to metanoia you and give you the cold shoulder. It's the kind of turning where you leave an old thing behind and you move toward a new thing. So the idea of repentance is, one, that it is active. It's not something that you just do one time and say, Well, I repented of that. I guess I'm good to go for the rest of my life. Never need to do that again. It's an active, ongoing thing. Daily contrition and repentance, as the Catechism says. So, you are daily repented. You're daily turning away from what? What are you turning away from? Sin. Yes, sin. Can you be more general? Use some of the language that I've used today. You're supposed to run away and hate what? Evil. Evil. You turn away from evil. Repentance is turning away from evil, but not just turning your back on evil. There's a difference. Turning away from evil is active. You are turning towards something better and something new. It is a change. That's what repentance is, an ongoing change. I don't want this anymore. This isn't good for me anymore. I shouldn't be striving toward this. I need to change. I need to turn away from it. I need to leave it, and I need to go to something that is good. That is repentance, turning behind or, or turning away from what is evil. And um, repentance then, it, nuts and bolts wise, we typically would say that it has two parts, which are just what the Catechism says, contrition and repentance. So there's a big umbrella term that is, hey, this is repentance. You live a life of repentance. But what is the life of repentance? It's contrition and then what, you know, repentance proper. And um, contrition, do you know what contrition is? I'll just ask you first before I keep talking. Do you know what contrition is? If you have a contrite heart, do you know what that is? Any guesses? Give me a sincere and contrite apology. <laughs> That's like when you do something wrong to one of your siblings, and then your parents tell you to apologize, and you don't think you did anything wrong, and then your parents say, you're going to apologize, and you're going to say it like you mean it. <laughs> I, I got that a lot. <laughs> you say it like you mean it. Be contrite, sincere, uh, heartfelt, in the case of repentance, contrition means that you are heart, heartily sorry for your sins. You recognize them. You are heartily sorry for them. You want to turn away from them. You're done with them. You want to do better. And all of this is the language that you get in uh, how we speak during Confession and Absolution. This idea of, I want to do better. I have sinned in thought, word and deed. All of these things I really shouldn't have done. I, I I strive toward what is good. I don't want to strive toward what is evil. The good that I want to do is the, not, is the thing I don't do, and the evil that I know I shouldn't do and really don't want to do, that's the thing I do. What's wrong with me? Contrition. I know what. I know that there is a problem, and I don't want that problem anymore. I am so heartily sorry for for it. Okay? So, uh, you confess because you are repentant, because you see and you know your sin, and the contrition is the seeing and the knowing part of... Repentance, seeing and knowing and hating. It's okay to hate as a Christian, you know, contrary to what you're taught. You're taught you should never hate. You should never hate. Now, it's true to say you should never hate anyone. In fact, when I was growing up, my mother taught us, and this is something her mother taught her, that to say you hated someone was such a strong thing that you should think about it as if you were telling that person, I wish that every child you bore would be born dead. That's what it means to say you hate somebody. It's such a horribly evil thing to say to somebody, to hate. Uh, But you can hate some things. You can't hate people. That's bad. You're supposed to love people. But you can hate evil. And in fact, you're called to hate evil. And it's okay to hate evil because the Lord hates evil. The Lord despises evil, the Lord despises sin, and you follow Jesus where He goes. You love the things He loves, and you hate the things He hates. You hate evil and wickedness and sin, which is why when you see evil and wickedness and sin in your own self, you try to get it out, run away from it. You're heartily sorry for it, and you run in to, to, to confess, to confess, okay? so. Uh, you've realized your sin, you see it, you know it, you know that it's bad. And uh, we would say guilt, that you feel guilt for your sins. And guilt can be a really good thing, but it can also be a bad thing. Contrition is when guilt is a good thing, when you see your sin and you recognize it and you feel bad and, and guilty for your sin. That's good. Why? Because that kind of guilt drives you to confession where you receive absolution, the touch of Christ, and that's a really good thing for you that will help you. Where guilt is bad is when the devil uses it. And uh, guilt, guilt can be a very potent weapon. If you've, there are toxic people in the world who perhaps you have encountered. I think everyone has encountered, maybe not the three of you. But those who are a little older, you encounter toxic people or people who have toxic behavior where guilt is the weapon that they use to control people. Uh, Guilt is the thing that they heap upon you and then you do what they want you to do because you feel so guilty. And then you do things to appease them so that you don't have the guilt anymore, which is, of course, precisely what someone like that wants. Here, by the way, is a really easy way to get out of that. And this is not just in dealing with people. It's also, there's a spiritual application to this as well. Remember this. Where there is no sin, there can be no guilt. No sin, no guilt. Um, That's important spiritually because every sin that you commit leaves memories. You can always remember the sins that you have committed. You can always remember the things that you have done wrong. Once you do it, it's kind of always there. And the devil uses those memories to attack you. To bring them up. When do you doubt if you really are a child of God? When do you doubt if the Lord really loves you? Typically, it's because some memory of something that you have done that you are particularly ashamed of pops into your head and you think, The Lord could not love somebody like me. This is a terrible thing. Well, that's, that's the work of the devil, using a memory against you and putting guilt there. So, absolution comes and it wipes away that guilt. It, it absolves you. It forgives you. And then you can say with Luther, I, oh, I have to quote here, when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, which he will do, that's, that's where you'll start to doubt. When you know what you've done, when the memory of your sin is terrible to you, and you think that you are lost and hopeless because of something you've done. When he declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? Everything's diffused. Do you see that? I admit it. Yes, I do deserve death and hell. In fact, I say it every Sunday at least one time that that's what I deserve. Justly deserve your temporal and eternal punishment. I've already acknowledged that fact. You're not telling me anything I don't already know, devil. For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God, and where he is, there I shall be also. No sin, no guilt. You can't make me feel guilty for sins that that Christ has taken. Part of confession and absolution is giving your sins to Jesus. Why do you confess? To get the sins away from you. Put your sins on Jesus. That's okay to do. In fact, he wants you to do it. He's a beast of burden. Take his yoke. He'll take your yoke. You take his. His is light. Yours is heavy. He's a lot stronger than you. He can carry yours. You are not very strong. You can't carry yours. Give it to him. His load is a lot lighter. It's beautiful, in fact. You want to carry the load of Christ. His burden is peace and joy and forgiveness and love. That's what you want. So that's when guilt becomes a bad thing, when guilt poisons your faith and makes you doubt. But guilt is good in the sense, in the spiritual sense of knowing your sins and wanting to be rid of them, knowing that there is something bad, and having that driving motivation that says, I, I must go to confession, I must go to the Lord, I must put my sins onto Christ. And don't hold them back. Um, Because you know what happens when you give sins to Jesus is that Jesus gets rid of them. Problems that are given to Jesus cease to exist because He either obliterates it or He takes it to the cross and then obliterates it. You can't give your sins to Jesus and have Jesus hold on to them to hang over your head because He's not going to do it. And you don't really want to hold on to your own sins because that's going to cause trouble for you. Hanging on to your own sins says, hey, I'd really rather take care of this all myself. I don't think I need you to take care of this. And the whole time the Lord is saying, no, 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 part of the whole point of this baptism thing and opening your eyes and all that is to show you you actually can't do it. Please give them to me. That's what's going to be good for you. So this kind of guilt is good that drives you to confess, to give up your sins, to give them to Christ. And there's a great quote from the monk uh, Bernard of Clairvaux. Really, really, really smart fella. I like Bernard of Clairvaux a lot. This is what he says. May the memory of my sins be so terrible to me that I never desire to commit them again. That's the attitude of the repentant, confessing Christian. May the remembrance of my sins, may the memory of my sins be so terrible to me that I never wish to commit them again. I don't ever want to do that again. I don't want to sin again. Drive me to Christ. Let me live in Christ. Let me give up the sins to Christ. Okay? Um. So that's contrition. That's contrition. And then repentance proper, as we sort of talked about, turning away. But not in the sense, again, of the cold shoulder to where I can just, I'll just turn away from you and then still sit here doing nothing, just like I was while I was still facing you. I'll just turn and face somebody else, and I'll turn away from you, but now I'll face you. Or now I'm done with you, now I'll face you. See? But I'm not going to move. I'm not going to be active. That's not that's not the kind of turning away. It has to be active. It's a turning away that hates what it is turning away from, and is running away from it, and loves what it is turning to, and is running toward that. Then that's the Christian life. Why do you follow Christ? Why is the life of faith the way? Because it's a life of constant motion. The Christian can't ever be static. You can't be stagnant and stagnant, static and stagnant like the settling pools. That's not your life of faith. In fact, the uh, the baptismal instructions from the Didache, I think, are great because they say you should be baptized in living water, water that is moving and bubbling and churning, because that's, that's the life you're being baptized into, one that is full of constant motion, Motion, running away from sin, running towards what is good, loving what is good, hating what is evil, turning away from it, repentance. Okay? So, now let's look at the liturgy, and I have a great handout. And here, right here, if you haven't already come to this conclusion yet in this class, this is where we turn a corner. This is where you realize how simple theology can be. There's only one handout if you're Watching this on the live stream, there's only one handout for this lesson, so you can get it. Theology by Winnie the Pooh. This is how simple theology can be. You can learn about theology from Winnie the Pooh. And let's be honest who doesn't love Winnie the Pooh? Because if you don't love Winnie the Pooh, perhaps maybe you're someone I don't really want to know. Because I. It, it's so good and kind and gentle, and there's so much to learn, even for adults there, that is taught in such a simple, simple way. You, you, sometimes you can be too smart even to see it, because you're looking for something more, and, uh, and you won't get it. Oh dear. Okay, we have plenty of time. I hear the door and I worry, because we have... Uh, we kind of have to be done. I'm scheduled today because we've got to clean up the Christmas things. And I set the time on purpose so that I would be honest about catechumen at time. <laughs> okay, here we go. Theology by Winnie the Pooh. So you'll see I have kind of a mashup here, what we say in church on the right, and what Pooh says on the left. So I'll read you Pooh. I have been foolish and deluded, said Pooh. And I am a bear of no brain at all. You're the best bear in all the world, said Christopher Robin, soothingly. Am I? said Pooh, hopefully. And then he brightened up suddenly. There it is. Everything that you've ever needed to know about Confession and Absolution, right there, as as told to you by uh, Winnie the Pooh. I have been foolish and deluded. Now what does that correspond to? I, a poor miserable sinner, confess unto you all my sins and iniquities with which I have ever offended you, and justly deserved your temporal and eternal punishment. You're just Pooh Bear. You're just a whole bunch of poo Bears on Sunday morning that come and say to the Lord, Well, I've been foolish and deluded, and I really am a bear with no brain at all. That's what you say. I've got a head full of fluff, Lord. Not a whole lot there. And the Lord says, I forgive you all your sins in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Hey, you're the best bear in all the world. You think that you're a really bad bear, and the Lord says, oh, don't worry about it. You're actually a pretty good bear. In fact, I think you're the best bear in all the world. I love you, bear. Sure, you got a little bit of fluff between the ears? What kind of, what what bear doesn't have fluff between the ears? Come on. Don't be so hard on yourself. You're the best bear in the world. I love you. And then you say the words of faith. Amen. Which is basically you telling the Lord, am I really? You really think that about me. I really am the best bear. And then you brighten up. Because you've gotten this word of grace. I'm I am, I am the best bear. Wow! Well, thank you! Okay? So this is confession. I have been bad. That's your confession. I've been bad. I'm a bear of no brain at all. Absolution is the Lord saying, you're in Christ. Christ has made you good. Christ takes away your sins. In Christ, you're a good bear. You're the best bear. You're my bear. You're my beloved bear. And then the response, ah, let it be so. Yes, okay, I am a good bear. Thank you, amen. Again, you see, this is another common theme you'll get in this class. Amen is a really important word. Don't be afraid of amen. In fact, say it loudly and boldly. I don't care if you're the only one at that communion table or in that whole church that says amen loudly and boldly. You know, I'll give you a gold star for that solo, because that's the kind of solo you want to have in the Christian church. Obviously, you would rather have a chorus, but if you are the soloist saying, Amen, that makes me proud and happy, because it's so important. Amen is you saying, hey, yeah, I am a good bear. When the Lord says, you, you're the best bear in all the world, you say, I... You said I'm the best bearer. I am the best bearer, because you said it. Amen. Let it be unto me as uh, as you have said. It's the voice of Mary. That's why I just quoted. Let it be unto me as you have said, according to your word. Okay? Let it be so. Amen. So now let's look here at what you're really saying in your uh, confession. A poor, miserable sinner... Um, what does it mean to be poor? This is, not, this is not a hard question. This is not a trick. What does it mean to be poor? Oh, I thought your hand was up. Yeah. Oh, it was? Okay. What does it mean to be poor? Okay? You don't have a lot of anything, you could say. That's what it means to be poor. You, you don't have a lot. In fact, in this sense, we would say you have nothing. Nothing but a little bit of fluff between the ears. Okay? You, you really have nothing at all. That's what it means to be poor. If you are poor, what do you have to give? What do you have to offer? If someone comes to take care of you and you are poor, what do you have to give them? Nothing. Nothing. The only thing that you can do is receive. The hand of the beggar is empty to receive and has nothing to give to the one who gives to him. By the way, this is one reason why, if you look at how I stand during the liturgy when we pray, it is like this. Hands, open hands toward the Lord is the ancient way to pray. Uh, Even in the Old Testament times, they lifted up their hands to heaven and prayed. But part of the meaning behind praying like this is that you're showing the Lord, I am so poor. I have nothing. I'm I'm coming to you, praying that you would take care of me. I have nothing that I can give to you. I am poor. It what it doesn't mean is this. Oh, poor, poor Brian. Oh, it doesn't mean pitiful. Oh, poor, oh, you poor sin. Oh, I'll take care of you. That's not what it means. It means you have nothing to offer. I can't give to the Lord anything. I am poor, and I am miserable. Now what do you think miserable should mean, based on how you would use it? If it's a blizzard outside with sleet and high winds and zero visibility, and you go outside to do something and you come back inside to your warm house and your glasses fog up and you're wet and cold and your boots are full of slush and you're stomping them off, what do you say? Oh, it's miserable outside. (laughs) Uncomfortable, unbearable, miserable. If you're sick and in bed and you feel terrible, you say, Oh, I feel miserable. I'm miserable here in bed. I ache. But, in this sense here, when we use that language in confession, it doesn't have anything to do with how you feel. That's how we use it in the common language. It it describes how you feel. How do you feel? Miserable. How's the weather out there? Miserable. Uh, it's, It's an adjective. It describes a feeling or a state of the thing. But here, in this sense, miserable really means that you are in need of mercy. It's it's actually comes from the Latin. So when you say that I am miserable, it doesn't it when you when you're when you say I am a, I am poor and I am miserable, it doesn't mean oh I feel so terrible. Please have pity on me. He called me. I'm I'm just I'm poor, poor me, I'm miserable. Having a hard time of it. That's not what it means. It means you have nothing to give and you are in need of mercy. To be poor a poor, miserable sinner is to say that I have turned away from the Lord. I have touched evil. Evil has been bad for me. I have nothing to give to the Lord, but I am in need of His mercy because I cannot cleanse myself from the evil that I have touched. It has to be somebody else. I am in need of mercy. The beggar who sits by the side of the road is a good example of the Christian life because you have nothing to give, only an open hand that receives what is given by another. And your leprous sores and ragged, torn garments indicate that you are someone in need of mercy. Okay? So, you poor, miserable sinner, you confess all your sins, uh, which with which I have ever offended you and justly deserved your temporal and eternal punishment. This is the eyes of faith that see the self for who he really is. I have been bad and I know that I have no excuses and I really do deserve the punishment. When I was growing up in our house, there was a rule that, every, that lying was an automatic spanking. It didn't matter how big or how small the lie. If you lied, it was a spanking, just. And uh, that's kind of the way that this is. Even if you, even if your lie wasn't a big lie and it didn't cause any harm, and you fessed up and you told the truth, the lie was still the lie, and you knew that you justly deserved the punishment that you were going to get. That is what you're confessing. I know that there is a punishment for sin. I know the Lord hates sin, I know that he consumes sin and because I am a sinner, I deserve that. That is the, that is what I deserve. justly. The Lord is a just God. But I am again heartily sorry for them. There's your contrition. And sincerely repent of them there's contrition and repentance I turn away I want to do better excuse me I want to do better one of the right of private confession and absolution really does say I want to do better um, for whose sake that's always the thing to look at for whose sake are you praying for forgiveness certainly not your own Brian do you need one of these did I not give you enough? I'm sorry. I thought I passed basic arithmetic, Brian, but I tell you what—I guess I didn't. <laughs> okay. So, for whose sake? Certainly not your own. Has to be someone else, because you already said that you were poor and miserable. That you have nothing to give, and you need someone else. You need the mercy of someone else. But so, for whose sake? Christ's sake. Yes. For Christ's sake. Okay. And then the Lord says to you, and it's important that you understand the Lord says this to you. We'll, we'll, there's a whole class where we're going to talk about this. The answer the question, how can a man forgive my sins? The short answer is it's not a man. It's the Lord. The words that the pastor speaks to you, the pastor's not speaking. The Lord is speaking. Okay. So the Lord says to you, upon this your confession, and, uh, well, actually... Just to keep it um, connected to the language, that these are the words the pastor says. I, that is, pastor, by virtue of my office. What is the office? It is Christ's office. That's the office of the ministry. I, by virtue of my office, which means I don't speak for myself. I speak. I am. This is not really me talking. Because uh, to tell you the truth. If it were left up to me, and I was the one that got to determine whether or not your sins were forgiven, well, I can't say with 100% certainty I'd always forgive your sins, because sometimes maybe I don't think you deserve your sins to be forgiven. So the fact that it's the Lord's office, the Lord's work, and the Lord's words is really good for you, because it takes me out of the equation. The pastor's always trying to step into the shadows, at least a good and faithful pastor is. Because it should never be about the pastor. Look at how the pastor dresses on Sunday. Everything that the pastor wears is to cover himself up. I'm covering myself up so that you don't see anything except the mouth that's going to speak to you the word of the Lord, an ear that's going to hear a confession, and the ear is the tomb where sins go to die, the hands that will give you Christ's body and blood and pronounce absolution, and the feet that are going to take me to where you are, to minister to you. That's all you need to see of me. Everything else is covered up. I want to hide. This is not about me. Everything screams, hey, this is about Jesus. So my office, as a called, and ordained servant, uh, do you ever wonder why a pastor wears a collar like this? Everything is black. The black should tell you a little bit about me. Uh, that's who I am. The collar is who my Lord is. Which is why the collar is the white part. And the reason why it's like a dog collar that goes all around my neck like that is to show you that I am a slave. I bear shackles. I don't get to do whatever I want, and I don't get to say whatever I want. I only get to do and say what the Lord has given me to do and say. It's not about opinions, because I'm shackled. I have a master. And I do what the master tells me to do. Called and ordained. Called means I'm yours, so it's your fault uh, if you don't like me, because <laughs> you called me. Uh, it also means the Lord has called me into the office and placed me there, okay, and ordained, brought... I, I wear the mantle of the office. I'm not just some Joe off the street that says, hey, you know what? Yeah, it'll be a fun thing going into the church on Sunday and tell some people they're forgiven. Eh? Yeah. No, I bear the mantle of the office. Okay, and I announce the grace of God unto you, and in the stead and by the command. That means it isn't me who's speaking. It's it's the Lord who's speaking, and I proclaim the Lord's words because. I'm a servant, and I am commanded to do that. Your pastor is an angelos, an angel, because your pastor is a messenger called to speak the words of God to you. Um, That's all an angel is, is a messenger, someone who proclaims the word of God. So I do that. That is the office of the ministry, is to proclaim to you the Lord's word of absolution. In the stead and by the command, I therefore in all of this forgive you all your sins in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And again, it's in the hand of blessing because the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is put on you with this hand that spells out the name of Jesus. Something that's physical. There's the touch of Jesus. Okay? So this is confession and absolution as taught by Winnie the Pooh. Now, we need to see, in seven minutes, confession and absolution as taught by Jesus. So let's do this, look at Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. This should be a very familiar thing. We'll start at verse 11, and I'll just go ahead and read this. Then he, that is Jesus, said, A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. Which is to say what? What is the portion of goods that falls to me? What's one word that we would call that? An inheritance. He demands his inheritance. Which means, what does he really say to his father? Not even, I wish you were dead. You are dead. I don't get the inheritance until you're dead. If I demand the inheritance, it tells you that you are dead. You're dead to me. So, great way to start. So, he, that is the father, divided to them, his sons, his livelihood. He did it. I want you to stop thinking about this whole parable as it is often called, the prodigal son, or mine says the lost son, because it isn't just about the son. There's just as much prodigalism, in the father as there is in the son. And there is just as much prodigalism in the older son as there is in the younger son. It's just a parable of prodigals, people who aren't doing things the way they are supposed to do them. Pay attention to that. The father gives him the inheritance. That's the first clue that this father is a little different than most. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Because how many friends stayed with him when his only friends are the ones that he carouses with? No. Not one of them. He is all on his own. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. What's so bad? How is this rock bottom? There's two reasons why this is rock bottom. What are they? It's not a sin to be wrong. So if you're afraid to answer because you might be wrong, I absolve you. There's no sin. You can't feel any guilt where there's no sin. That was something a seminary professor once said because he would ask questions and everyone would just sit there because they were all you know, first year seminarians. They really think that they know a lot until they get into class and then they, then they know they don't know anything. And they sit there. I don't know, what do I say? Or oh, I might say something that's wrong. And he said, Gentlemen, it's not a sin to be wrong. Being wrong is how you learn. So I repeat that here. It's not a sin to be wrong. So, what are the, what are the two rock bottom signs? What are the two things that make it rock bottom? But he gladly eat the food that the pigs would eat. Yeah, okay, there's one right there. Pigs don't eat what we would call a gourmet supper. I'm sure they love it. But it's not the kind of thing that you look at and go, Boy, gee, I wish I could have some of that for supper tonight. So the fact that he looks at that and wishes that that is something he could eat says he's eating worse than the pigs. The swine eat better than he does. And no one gives him anything. He's in a merciless country. He is a poor, miserable person, and he receives no aid. That's rock bottom one. Where's rock bottom two? I'll give you a hint on this one. Think of what would be rock bottom for a good Jewish boy. Someone who follows the law, specifically the law of cleanliness. Swine. Swine! Yes! Good! So not only is he starving and wishing he could eat the food, the slot that pigs are eating, he's working with pigs. He is impure and unclean, working with animals that are unclean. It's rock bottom of body, mind, and soul. Poor fella. But when he came to himself, came to his senses. He said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. True or false? I have sinned against heaven and before you. True or false? True. Yes, absolutely. Good confession. And I am no longer worthy to be called your son. True or false? I am no longer worthy to be called your son. True. True. He is no longer worthy to be called the son. That is another good confession. Make me like one of your hired servants. Now there's the problem. Why is that, a, why is that bit a problem? He has a good confession. I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. Thought, word, and deed. And I justly deserve your temporal and eternal punishment. I deserve not to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. What's wrong with it? He doesn't deserve to be like the hired servants? Well, okay, I mean, he doesn't. That's true. But what is, what is his thought process? Why does he think that he'll ask to be like a hired servant? Yes, because he'll earn it. He'll earn it. That's the problem. Confession never seeks to work, confession only ever seeks to receive, to receive absolution, the gift of the Lord. So he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. What's wrong with that picture? How many big-time, wealthy, important men run to meet visitors? None. The king doesn't run to meet you. You are ushered in to see the king. That this man runs out to see his son is backwards. That son should be coming to me hands and knees groveling. He needs to come to me. But no! This father says, I will go to him. Why? Why does he run to his son? Yes? Because he's happy to see him. Because he's happy to see him. And why is he happy to see him? He's his son. Because he's his son. And what does a father think about his son, Brian? From first-hand experience. (laughs) Hopefully. (laughs) What does your father think about you? Uh What are his feelings toward you? You Yeah, yeah, you better answer this right or you're going to hear about it when you go home, huh? What what are his feelings toward you? Love. Yes, the father loves his son. Okay? The father loves his son. He has compassion on him, he runs out to meet him. It's a gesture of love. And he falls on his neck and he kisses him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. True or false? True, yes, good confession. And am no longer worthy to be called your son. True or false? True, True. good confession. But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him. Wait! Where's the last part? This is so good. The father interrupts him. The son has this plan. I'm going to confess my sins, and then I'm going to tell him how I'm going to make it right. Because that's how we think, isn't it? I broke the vase. I knew I wasn't supposed to play ball in the house, and I broke it. I'm going to go to my mom, and I'm going to go to my dad, and I'm going to tell them, this is what I've done. I'm very sorry. And here's how I'm going to make it right to you. Now, there's nothing wrong with making things right, but making things right is a completely different part of confession and absolution and that whole process, which we'll talk about next week. But suffice it to say that when you are confessing your sins, you're not confessing to try and work towards something. You're confessing because you want to receive mercy. So the father interrupts his son. Yes, of course you sinned against me and you sinned against heaven and earth. Of course you don't deserve to be called my son, but you're not the one who gets to determine that. You are not the one who gets determined. I do that. So he gets his best robe, and he puts a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And he says, Bring the fatted calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to be merry. The end. Ooh. Well, that's probably where it should end, but there's more. This will be, we'll finish this up, and then we'll just have to continue next time. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry and would not go in. That's another important thing. How ought this son behave? Just like his father. This son ought to receive his brother the same way that his father did. But he is angry. There's a lot of this in Scripture, in the parables of Jesus, this idea of anger, jealousy of people. Um, The workers in the vineyard The man goes out and hires people in the morning, late morning, afternoon, late afternoon, and even right in the evening, only an hour before they stop working. And he gives how much to every person who worked? The same. And the people who were there first get angry. They shouldn't get as much as we do. Or we should get more if you're going to pay them what you said you'd pay us. It's not fair. Well, of course it's not fair. Whoever ever said anything about being fair? Listen, life's not fair. F- fair, you don't want a God that's fair. You want a God like this Father, who is unfair. Why? Because if God is fair, then it means you get what you deserve. An unfair God means you get something that you don't deserve. And that's good for you. You want a God that's unfair. A fair God's going to smite you. A fair God is going to consume you. A fair God is going to give you the just deserts that you have sought and earned yourself. He was angry and he would not go in. Therefore, his father came out and pleaded with him. Another thing the father does not do. If he wants to sit out there and sulk, let him. No! I will go out to him, and I will try to get him to come in here. I'll negotiate with him. I'll plead with him, please, please come in here. This is so much better. Don't you understand? So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I never transgressed your commandment at any time, and yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came, see, he's not my brother. There's guilt there. He's not my brother. My brother wouldn't behave like that. This son of yours, and that's a, that's another instance where he's kind of saying he's dead to me too. He, the younger said to his younger son, "said to his father, you're dead to me." The older brother said to his younger brother, "you're dead to me." But as soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, where did it ever say anything about harlots? Who knows what that son used that money for? All that it says is that he used it for carousing and drunkenness. Never said anything about harlots. This is the way sin works too. It builds and it builds and it builds. It's kind of like small-town gossip. It's like the game telephone. Did you ever play that game where you say one thing to one person and it slowly goes down the line of people, and by the time it gets to the end, the person who says the message that they thought they heard is completely different from the message that started. It changes and it changes and it mutates over time. Well, that's what sin does too. He was away, he was carousing, look at him, look at him, playing with harlots, this horrible sinner bigger and bigger and bigger, and this hatred bubbles and grows. And hatred is such a bad thing in the church. You just can't do it. Hatred is drinking poison and then waiting for your enemy to die. It doesn't work. It's only bad for you. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead, and is alive again, and was lost and is found. And this is the capstone parable for this whole chapter about the lost sheep, the shepherd who goes after one and leaves behind the 99, and the lost coin, the the woman who finds a penny and throws a $3,000 block party to celebrate that she found a penny. Does it make any sense at all? No, it doesn't. But that's the way the Lord works. That's what love makes him do. Love makes him irrational and kind of crazy, and he does weird things because he wants you so badly. The woman is so glad to have found her penny. The shepherd was so glad to find his sheep. The father was so glad to have his youngest son, and the older son should have been glad as well. Okay, this is an image of God's relationship with you on a daily basis, and a description of what happens in confession an absolution within every confession, um, and a description really of what the church looks like. Okay, questions? Quickly, we'll finish up the rest of this and jump into some other stuff next week. Okay, uh, let us pray. Our Father who art in Amen. heaven, hallowed be Thy name. name. Thy, thy kingdom, kingdom come. Thy will, will be done, done on earth as it is in heaven. heaven.